You're listening to Syntax, the podcast with the tastiest web development treats out there. Strap yourself in and get ready. Here is Scott Talensky and Wes Boss. Welcome to Syntax. This is a web development podcast. My name is Wes Boss. With me, as always, is Scott Talensky. How are you doing today, Scott? Hey, I am doing super good. Yeah, I'm feeling really good in my office right now. I've been conmarying everything and <laughs> everything feels very like open and free. We just did our entire kitchen and we just donated like half of our entire kitchen. So, oh man, everything in this house feels great. And when you work from home, it is really important to have your workspace or your home life, your home space. Everything feels so good. So I'm feeling good. I'm ready to go. I'm, I'm feeling nice and refreshed. How about you? Awesome. I'm feeling good as well. I'm uh, I need to still clean up my office, but uh, we've definitely been feeling the, the Con Murray as well yeah, in, our, in our house here. Today's episode is called the Freelance Client Lifecycle, and I think we're going to actually break this up into two episodes. And we're basically going to talk through all of the steps from like meeting your client and gathering requirements all the way through to deploying the website and handing it off to the client and fixing any bugs. And we're going to go through each of those steps and sort of explain uh, what it is that you do here, because we get a lot of questions about freelance just because the beauty of being a web developer is you can work for yourself or you can just like make an extra couple thousand bucks on the side and pay for your family's vacation or buy a new laptop or whatever it is. You can always make a little bit of side money doing freelance. So we're going to go through all of that. Scott and I, I, I myself have been a freelancer for, I don't know, like 10 years or so. I've, I've gone through hundreds of clients, client projects, and I have this sort of down. Scott as well has done quite a bit of uh, client work as well. So uh, we're going to lend our thoughts to this. Today's episode is sponsored by two awesome companies, LogRocket, which lets you replay what users do on your site, helping you reproduce bugs and fix issues faster. And Tech Meme Ride Home Podcast, which is kind of cool. We're having a podcast sponsor our podcast. They do a daily podcast about what's going on in the tech world. It's called The Ride Home by Tech Meme. We'll talk a little bit more about those both partway through the episode. So I already asked you how you're doing, Scott. So <laughs> why don't we jump right in? Let's jump. Yeah. So let me just kind of frame this, I guess. We're going to first talk about gathering requirements, producing a quote, producing timelines, creating a contract, setting expectations. And we're assuming that this is a project that has both design and development baked into it. We understand that not all projects have that. So the design phase of the project, the development phase of the project, feedback and revisions, deployment, handoff, bug fixes and support, and finally what to do when things go to shit. <laughs> so we'll probably will get up until design, depending on how long this takes today. And then we'll have a part two next week that will will finish this off. Yeah, the sequel. Cool. So I think uh, <laughs> one of the, the first things I'm going to mention before we even get started is that we won't be covering how to find clients in this episode. I think that might be worth an entire separate episode because that is like a whole thing is finding clients and building those relationships and growing those things. And we've talked about a little bit on this show, but we, we're not going to be covering how to actually come across these clients. This assumes that you have a client, you have a project, and uh, you are ready to go. So since we are ready to go, let's get into it by gathering requirements, which is typically the first thing you do when you start a particular project. 
Yeah, so I really like this um, phase of it. And I think that this is probably the most important part of the process. Often you want to rush into just building the thing or designing the thing because that's that's what you do and that's your occupation and that's what you're probably excited about. But spending time on gathering the requirements to the project is really, really important. And if you botch this, you're going to have change orders and what's called scope creep happening throughout the entire project. And uh, I think that poor planning is why agencies have dedicated project managers. It's like a full-time job just to manage your actual client. And I think that it's also why many freelancers hate their clients. We get a lot of questions that are sort of have a tone of them versus the client. Why are clients so stupid? They're so dumb and it's so hard to work with them. And clients are wild, right? And it's your job to actually tame them and it's your job to actually interface with them. You're running a business here and it's it's your job to actually interface with them and, and keep things on track as, as best as you can. So what are some ways that you can gather requirements, Scott? Yeah, I, I think the biggest one is to kick things off with some good communication by asking a lot of questions. And communication is going to be a common theme through most of this episode mm-hmm. and the next because the good communication, bad communication is really the sort of the make or break besides the technical aspects of a project. So initially, you're going to want to ask a lot of questions. You're going to want to ask questions about their thoughts on on other on other projects, on other things they like, what they don't like. You're going to want to ask about what the general requirements are of their site. And I'm talking general requirements. This is before we even get down into the nitty gritty. We want to just know what overall, what's the big picture? What are they looking at? What are they like? What are their their thoughts on sort of things? Yeah, I think at this point in the in the project, what I will always do is talk to them about their business. Say, what is it that you do? How is it that you make money? What are people landing on your website to do? What are they looking to find? And just really getting inside their business because you're on their side. You're trying to help. And I say business, but it, it might be any type of, of organization. Yeah. And then you take that and you don't just ask them, like, what do you want? Because the client might not necessarily know what they want. They're hiring you. You're the expert. But you basically take like, what are your needs in here? What are you hoping to have on the website? They can provide any input on that. I break that down into not necessarily pages, but you kind of can kind of go through the whole website and break it down into major pieces of functionality. So you might have a I always use a store finder as an example because I've built like plenty of those in my day. You might need a contact form. You might need a specific contact form. So even like if someone says, yeah, contact form, like I specifically remember working for a client. They said a contact form. No problem. WordPress contact form, slap it in, change the email. You're up and running. Right. But the, the real need was the ability to have multiple recipients. Uh, you want to choose from a list of people who can receive the email. Uh, you need to be able to filter by department first of all, and then you also have the option to upload files, and then you also have the option to CC yourself. So that was way more involved. And that that was before a lot of these like form builders had been around and I had to build a lot of that functionality myself. And I had had to sink a couple of days into building that thing. Whereas just in my mind, I accidentally just asked them, oh, you need a contact form. No problem. That's like six minutes versus a couple of days. So it's really important to say these are the pieces of functionality I need. And this is how it will work, breaking down every single piece of functionality, what it needs to do at the end of the day. You can't be more specific in your requirements because I've just been burned so many times my own doing by just not asking the right questions. And it's my fault, not the client's fault. 
Yeah. And a lot of the time, I think that even can stem from not seeing the big picture as as technical people, as developers or, or designers. We often get lost in our craft and we we see things in a way that are very much through the eyes of somebody who has training. And typically what we want to be focusing a lot of times is, again, you mentioned a lot of big picture stuff in terms of what is the client really trying to do, right? We see it as, hey, we're taking some data and sending it into a form, but maybe that's not what the, the client's not seeing it like that. They're seeing like, I need to gather leads. I need to keep track of this. Yeah. I need to do this. So you want to be looking at the actual needs and not the technical needs as well. You want to see big picture of what they're trying to accomplish. And one of those big things is like, really, how does this business work, right? How does this organization work? What are their goals? How do they make money? How, like, what is the end result? result of what you're trying to do here, right? If you're building a website for maybe like a real estate agent, are they trying to gain leads so that they can work with clients and sell homes, right? I mean, at the end of the day, the main goal there is to generate leads. So your work is not to have a content form that submits a thing or whatever. It's to help them generate leads. And I, I think understanding that scope and that practical real world of what's going on rather than getting lost in the weeds of the technical aspect of things is going to help you better understand what technical challenge will present themselves. Because again, your client, they don't care about the technical aspects. They don't care about the technical creative aspects of your work. They care about the results and what they're trying to do with their business. Yeah, absolutely. And, and at the same time, the client also doesn't know what is hard and what isn't. So I'd always tell my clients, tell me, like first of what your website needs to do, but tell me like if you had a dream website and and at the end of the rainbow, what would it do? And then I will take those dreams and your hard requirements and then suggest something that's not going to blow the budget because like you don't know, like if you have no idea how much time this stuff makes, then you have no idea how, how expensive it's going to be at the end of the day. So it's up to you as well to take the, the budget into it. So at, at this point, I also usually ask the client what sort of budget you're working with. It's a hard question to ask because everyone kind of squirms when you talk about it. But um, it may very well be I have no idea or it may be very well they say I've got 1500 bucks or I've got 10,000 bucks or I've got $20,000 to spend right now. And I like to ask that question very early on because many times when I was early on, I spent maybe a day or so gathering requirements, producing a quote, doing research, because often it was something where they would ask for a specific example of something like I need to be able to have a video slider and I would spend maybe like an hour or so just making sure it was possible and not too over my head. Mm -hmm. And if you spend all that time and then you realize that they're just out to lunch on on money, they're like, oh, I was hoping it would be two hundred dollars. And you're like, no, this would be ten thousand dollars. Then you've just you've wasted all that time. So asking about money up front and, and kind of giving them a ballpark of maybe just bring them up a couple of websites that you've done in the past and said this was 10 grand. This was 15 grand. This was two grand. I just built this one little piece. Um, I think that's that's really important as well. Yeah, I think being upfront about money in general is an important thing as well, like understanding what people have to work with and what things might cost when gathering that. That way, there's no sort of sticker shock when you do give them a quote. I mean, again, if they're expecting to be spending $2,000, but you are expecting to get paid $10,000 for this thing and you submit that, uh, it could be a little bit shocking if those initial understandings of what the scope of the project is wasn't taken care of in that initial gathering requirements chat because again this is 
what you're doing for freelance and what they're doing is a business and in businesses, they talk about money. So you're going to have to get comfortable talking about money, talking about what things cost and don't feel like you are. I don't know. It's a hard skill to learn, but I I think oftentimes people feel like when they want to start talking about money that they want to start feeling maybe guilty for whatever they're charging or there's some sort Mm -hmm. of inherent feelings there. And so I think that's something to get over and just flat out say, what what is the budget for this project? And it is sort of a, a conversation. People sometimes see it as like a, this is the price it's not going to move, or this is the this is yeah. the budget it's not going to move. It's a it's a conversation. It's a back and forth. This is how much I have. Okay, well, this is what we can do for that, or uh, let me work with these restraints, but maybe present to you an option with more money. I just think about like, we were building a fence, right? And the guy asked, you know, how much we're looking to spend on a fence. So we tell him this is sort of the ballpark or whatever. And he didn't come back to me with, all right, here's what we can build to you for this amount. It was like, we can build you for this, which is cheaper than what you said. We can build this, which is probably closer to what you said. And we can build this or this, which are way above what you said. And maybe you want to go above and beyond and do these extra things. Yeah. Every time we do stuff in our house, our contractor comes over and he knows that money is you have to be conscious about money. But there's like this fine balance between my wife's overly expensive tastes and (laughs) the actual uh, budget that needs to happen. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And we love him for that because it's not like he is conscious about the money as well, which is really good. And he was he's always suggesting stuff because he's the expert in in that case. So I think that's good. Uh, One last thing I'll say in gathering requirements is it's important to know who will be using the site and who will be updating the site. So both as a back end administration who will be updating the site uploading content, writing blog posts, uploading photos, whatever it is. And then who will be consuming the website? Is it primarily mobile users? Is it primarily people who are on their desktop? Is it business users? Is it technical users? Is it older people? All of that information is important to take into consideration uh, when you're gathering these requirements. I have a a question for you. What are your thoughts on a form like I know in, in an ideal world, this is a conversation that's happening back and forth, right? It's a, it's yeah. you meet for coffee or something like that, or you go to a, a business and you, you go to their conference room and talk. But what are your thoughts on giving a standardized form to all new clients? Like, hey, here, fill out this Google form, which has a list of, you know, 20 questions or something. Yeah, I don't like it from an initial a point of contact, because if you're just searching the web for web developers and you, you stumble upon someone's thing and they have a phone number and an email, sometimes they have a little contact form with a couple inputs in it. I think that's fine. But if you were to straight up hit them up with this huge contact form, most people aren't far enough and they need help thinking about all of these things. So usually what I like to do in that case is you can have an initial chat with them and say, I'm going to send you over this huge contact form or, or this form to fill out, fill out as much as you possibly can. There's a hundred questions on here and then we'll come back. And it, we that actually happened on our, this is totally unrelated to web development, but we, we went through with our daughter, uh, a sleep trainer because she was not sleeping at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the way it worked is we got on the phone with the sleep trainer and we said, like, what's going on? We're not sleeping. Our, our kid just is not going to bed and waking up all the night. And then she's like, OK, um, I think I can help you. I'm going to send you over like this. It's going to take you two hours to fill out this huge thing. It's going to be every aspect of your life and, and the room and everything about the child. And I think that was good because they hooked us with the first little call and the contact. And then we had to put in like two hours worth of work actually filling out this thing. And then we gave that back to them. And then based on that two hour form, we had a one hour 
hour call with the, the plan of approach of how to actually solve this thing. And I thought that was such a good way where it didn't feel like a job initially, because if they had asked us right out the gate to fill out that form, no way. I don't have time, yeah. to, time to do something like that. But I was convinced after our initial phone call. We were actually initially doing something with a financial planner, right? And they sent us yeah. a big old questionnaire form. And the questionnaire mm -hmm. was like really nice. And it was like a nice way to, to have that after we had already had an initial like chat. And yep. uh, man, they made a, every single input on that thing required. And there was oh. like maybe like 20 things that we just flat out didn't know how to answer. It's like, we want to have a conversation about these things. Like, and I was just like, ah, oh, okay, I guess I have to like input like something in there just so it lets me submit the form so we can continue this conversation. And it was just so frustrating. <laughs> so yeah, give definitely give your clients the option of not filling in things they don't know or aren't comfortable understanding, like submitting in a form. So yeah. Cool. And I also, that's a really good point as well, because I think these kinds of forms will make the person start thinking about it. And if you sit them down for coffee immediately and start asking these questions, they may have not even started to think about X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. But if you give them a form, they're going to take a day or two and chew on it, talk to their significant other about it, and then they'll, they'll come back to you with a lot of really good info. So that's that's a requirement. So that was probably 15 minutes of of just gathering requirements. Again, I think that's probably the most important part. This um, is why this episode you, is two parters, because there's a lot here. There's a lot of there's a lot of little nuggets in here, I think, that is, is important to, to touch on. So once you have all your requirements, you feel like you've asked enough questions, it's time to then take that. And probably I would say the worst part is is figuring out the quote for this thing, because you have to take this huge list of requirements and figure out how much that thing is going to cost. And we've talked on end on this podcast how we're both big fans of fixed price billing um, instead of hourly, because you don't want to come back to this person and say it's going to take 100 hours at $100. And like they're going to say, like, OK, like I have no yeah. idea. Yeah. Like if, if someone came to me and said, I'm going to renovate your bathroom at $48 an hour, and like, unless you give me like a finite, you will not go over however many hours. That means nothing to me. I have no idea how fast it takes you to knock a wall down or, or plumb, in, plumb in some water. So what we like to do is to provide a fixed quote based, which is here is what you will get. And and here is how much it's going to cost. So how, how do you figure out that fixed quote? What's your approach, Scott? Well, actually, even before I get into that, I think you had a really good point about I mean, we've so far we every single time we're giving examples about something that we, we keep going back to other contractors or other things that we're working with. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and yeah. I think it's important to just look at our profession and think in some ways it's not special at all in terms of your contractor. You're doing work for a client. And you're going to get it yep. done that way. And too often we get lost in like what. Our, what we're doing as professionals here, but you really need to look at it the same way that you would have these expectations from a client that you were hire or a, or a contractor that you were hiring to do something for you or your business, how you'd want that to work. Okay. So yeah, for breaking down the quote or even figuring out the amount for me, I like to just take a big step back and list out all the requirements. And even though we're not doing things hourly, I still like to go through sort of thing by thing and think about, all right, what is the time commitment here? 
what are the potential pitfalls? What are these things that are, are maybe going to to take longer than I'm expecting? And and really look at that because that is the the chunk of what this thing is going to cost in terms of your time and your availability to get this done. And again, it, it could eliminate some aspects in which you might need to ask more questions to even establish what those things are going to be. Because the last thing you want to do is say, all right, this slideshow is going to take me two hours. It's going to be no big deal. And then when you get into it, figure out it's going to take you 10 hours. And then, of course, your quote that you've generated is now just well sunk, you know, essentially. Totally. So what I'll do in this case as well is break it down into major functional areas, which I have done already in the requirements. Yep. Um, so that's kind of the beauty of gathering requirements in functional areas. And then I'll go through it and say the store picker is going to take me 20 hours to build uh, this homepage that has a custom layout is going to take me another Eight, and then I'll, I'll sort of like break it down into that, add up all the hours. And at this point, you also need to kind of figure out what you're worth at an hourly, even though you're not charging hourly, you got to figure out what's an hour's worth of my time. So uh, when I was doing it, it was between, uh, well, when I started, it was like $40 an hour up until like I finished at about like one to 150 an hour. And then you basically take the number of hours you think. I usually add on 20, 30% just because mm -hmm. developers are horrible at estimating how long time will take. And you usually think that you're much faster than you actually are. So add on 20, 30% and then multiply that by how much you have. There's also this, this idea of a value-based billing as well, where even though you, you might have like built out a whole tool set. Uh, you might have built out a whole bunch of like your own internal libraries or or whatever to to make yourself faster. That doesn't necessarily mean you should charge less because there's still value given to the client in in that thing that you're bringing to them. And then once I have that added all up, usually I don't usually break it down into each functional area. But if the client is concerned about about potential price, I'll try to like maybe break something out of that being like, you know what, we don't have to do the store picker right now. That's going to be 2000 bucks. And we can do that, that at a later time. But included in my initial quote is laying the groundwork so that we can easily add on this thing in the future, just so that we we kind of know about that this might come in the future. And it's important for me to know that when I'm, I'm building this framework, when you're setting up your schemas or your data types, it's important to know about that. So that's how I do it. And then I, I what else do we do here? You explain the tech in relation to how it will help their business or how easy it will be for them to manage. So it's important to spell out what tech you are going to be using in this thing. Some clients don't care, but generally you want to say, I'm going to be using WordPress or Gatsby and the back end is going to be built in in something else. And it will be easy for you to update it because that's important as well. I've heard many horror stories where developers build their thing in some like markdown based GitHub thing and it's impossible for the client to update it because they have no skills to do that. But yeah. don't just say it because like this is good tech. Say this is good tech because it's going to make your website fast. It's going to help your business grow. It's going to be easy to update. This is open source technology. So if I get hit by a bus, any developer can pick it up from there on out. Yeah. And it's definitely an important aspect of things because at the end of the day, your client doesn't necessarily care about the tech itself, right? They care about what the tech is going to do for them, right? It's going to be super easy for them to update. It's going to be super duper fast. It's going to be faster than all of their competitors. It's going to be any of that stuff. And and I, I think those are the important aspects to outline when you're talking about the tech itself. 
and uh, just so we don't get lost in the weeds there. And the next step is going to be presenting the quote. And now I think this one is occasionally, I think this one is occasionally underdone. You know, maybe you're just sending an email. It's going to cost this much, right? And and that's not, I, in my opinion, that's not the ideal way to do it. Because I think about when I worked for an agency and one of the ways that we did it is we had a presentation to it, but not even in the presentation we did, we listed out each of the things that are going to be included. We also talked about what's not going to be included. So if the site is this, we're going to say, all right, it's going to be, again, this tech, we're using these things. It's going to be this way. Uh, it's going to feature this a slideshow here, a content form or contact form here, blah, blah, blah. What it's not going to do is it's not going to have real, I guess it, it, this aspect of things maybe should be things that you've potentially discussed, like if the client was thinking, well, maybe I want some real-time chat or something. Maybe, no, you're going to say the site's not going to have real-time chat. It's going to have a contact form that submit once, blah, blah, blah. Um, you should also have some sort of some validation for in terms of how long this quote is valid for, right? Like this quote expires on this date or this quote is good for two weeks because you don't want your client to sit on this quote for two months and then maybe you're way busier now than you were two months ago. And when you're way busier, uh, due to the laws of supply and demand, your price will technically either your price or availability will change or go up. So, I mean, the yeah. quote when you make it should be for that point in time for maybe like two weeks or something. Yeah, I, I always put that on all my quotes just because I don't want someone coming back a year later and being like, hey, we'd like to do this now. Yep. So I say this quote will be valid for two weeks. And also we're going to get into timelines next. The quote will also the timelines are based on the person accepting it X, Y and at a certain point in time, just because it's important to you, you, the contractor, you might get another job and then all of a sudden your entire bandwidth is taken up and you can't overload yourself in that manner. Another thing, like people always ask me, like, what's a template for your quote? Mine is very, very simple. It's usually just my logo. It has a title that says like, quote for business website. And then this quote is valid for two weeks. And then underneath that, I'll have a little blurb of what the website will do. Um, and then I break down each of those functional areas that we talked about in the last two steps. Well, I'll say the homepage. This is what it includes. These are the different features. Here's the store finder. Here's how the store finder will work. Here's a technology it will be based on breaking down each of those. And then at the final, the final piece of the quote is I actually give out the prices for what it is. Note that it includes taxes as well. A lot of people always feel bad. Initially, people who are first getting into freelancing feel bad about having to charge tax for some reason. But in almost all cases, the business doesn't have to pay that tax. They'll get it back at the end of the year anyway. But just making that template look professional, you can't include too much information in that quote because it should, mine are usually just like two or three pages long. Make sure that the client reads through it, what it does include, what it doesn't include. And then it's a nice and clean way to, to reference that at any point in time. Yeah. And I do think presentation matters here. I mean, granted, we're living in a different world than we were when I was working at my agency because it's all much more digital based. But we were working when I worked at this agency, all of our we would have a meeting to give the quote. And in that meeting, we would have individual embossed uh, or not envelopes, uh, folders. They were like an embossed folder with our logo on it. The quote had like a nice template. The whole thing had a custom look to it, a custom feel to it. It was printed on heavier paper. It was very <laughs> just professional feeling. So when you gave it to them, it felt like 
I mean, they're not getting anything, but they're about to open up to something to potentially agree to a lot of money. I mean, if you think about it, it's like companies like Apple, right? They put a lot of money or a lot of time into that experience of your products. So you're more likely to give them more money because the experience is better. So if you're getting this, like everything's digital now, so it's not as easy to do some of that stuff. But if they're getting a PDF or getting something like that, it's going to be better for you if you're charging more money to have a more luxurious experience than uh, like a standard Google Doc with a standard font or even worse, just an email with a price tag or something. Yeah. Yeah. Don't paste it into an email. Always send it. And also don't send it as a DocX. Every time someone sends me. Oh, yeah. Like something in a DocX, like a contract or something, I die a little bit. A contract makes sense because contracts, you can redline stuff that you don't agree with and then sign it. But I generally just prefer to get a PDF because I don't have to like open it up in in Word or convert it in Google Docs. And it's such a pain in the butt. Just send it as like a a solid sealed PDF that the the client can look over. And then if there are revisions to that, you can always include the revision in the name in the name of the the actual quote itself. Cool. Speaking of technology, one of our sponsors (laughs) today is uh, the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast. So Tech Meme is a publication that covers everything in in tech. So uh, big companies like Facebook, uh, obviously Apple, all of the hardware, all of the software, whatever's going on in the tech world, Tech Meme will cover it. And they have a podcast that runs daily at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And uh, it's usually about 15 to 20 minutes long, and it's just going to get you up to speed with what's going on in the technology world. And I, I like this because like there are ways you can you can stay up to date with the, what's going on in technology. You can stay on Twitter all day long and sort of ingest all these tweets, or you can just listen to this podcast once a day on your ride home, on your walk home, on your boosted board home. You can, oh wait, you're not supposed to listen to stuff when you're on your boosted board, are you? Maybe not. <laughs> Anyways, know. whatever method of transportation you are on your way home, uh, thing is 15 to 20 minutes, uh, seven and a half to 10 minutes if you are listening to it at 2x and you can just kind of ingest whatever's going on in the tech world, which is pretty cool. One kind of cool antidote they provided here is that Mark Zuckerberg, CEO of Facebook, if you haven't heard of him, he called Tech Meme the one news source he definitely follows. So take a look at the podcast if you're trying to stay up to date with what's going on in our crazy technology world, especially like over the last week was CES, the Consumer Electronics Show. And there's just been tons of, especially I've been trying to crazy follow all the, sm- the smart home stuff that's yeah. been coming out, all of the new updates to all the new lights and, and sensors and whatnot. So I'm going to add this to my uh, overcast today. The way you find it is just go, there's no website for it. So just search on your podcast app for Ride Home and you'll, you'll find it. It's called the Tech Meme Ride Home. Thanks so much to them for sponsoring. I love podcasts of that of that length. I subscribe to like several that are like come out daily that length and you just put them on and they're over quickly. You get a nice little dose of everything. And uh, and so it's a big fan of stuff like that. It's a tasty treat like we try to do, but very rarely ever keep under 20 minutes. <laughs> right. No kidding. Right. OK, so next one is going to be talking about timelines. And this one is important because this is one of those aspects of a project that can make or break sort of how your client feels about the project, because If you set the incorrect expectations for timelines and uh, you go over your timelines, it's going to immediately look badly upon you. Obviously, we all know that clients have a knack 
for uh, extending timelines by not giving you assets on time and not doing their their part of the job on time. And uh, that's something that we need to spell out. So in the first part is, yeah, you need to have a timeline with hard dates. All right. Hard on, hard off. Because uh, I see Wes laughing over there. (laughs) (laughs) I set you up for that and you took it. (laughs) Anyways, continue. Yes. Hard on, hard off. Yes, you even capitalize the hard on. I see that now. It is important because like, honestly, your timeline is just as important as their timeline, right? Because especially if you're working with several different clients at different times, the last thing you want to be doing is having your project extend into another timeline for another project. And then you're working double time or overtime or whatever. So essentially, you do need to have hard dates. This is when we're going to launch. This is when we're going to have some sort of beta period where things are good. You can test out and use it. This is the design time. This is the dev time. All this stuff listed out clearly on a calendar. And one thing I like to do is set up a Google calendar that actually shares with your client so that they see it on their calendar. Any sort of meetings go along with that, but they see start time, end time. This is when we're launching. This is this. And that way, if they have any questions like, oh, is the design done? Because it says the design should be done right now. You best have that Mm -hmm. design done on time. Yeah, I always have in my quote, in my quote, often I include the timelines as well. And I say all of these timelines are assuming if I have questions or also I I provide a list of due dates from them because you are working with your clients. It's not like they just give you the job and you go off and do it. Often you need things like content is probably the biggest one. Uh, You need assets. Maybe they're taking some photos of their space or their products that need to get done by a certain point. So I always say, assuming you hit these deadlines I've spelled out for you, as well as assuming that any questions that I have, you give me a 24 hour turnaround on any questions or feedback that I require, because all too often people are chomping at the bit to launch this thing. And then when it comes to you asking a question about, hey, could you send me over uh, the list of people and all of their jobs? Or, hey, could you send me over X, Y, and Z? It takes a week or two for them to, to get around to it. And that can just destroy any timeline. So holding your client accountable to what their end of the bargain is, is really important. Because you, And then I also say in here is like, if you blow these timelines, then I have to start another job. Like, this is my job. I have to start other things. And this might just like drag on forever. So uh, it's really important to me that I keep my own timelines, but you also are on the ball with with working with me on this thing so we can move it well along. Yeah. I mean, I love how you you have a note here that says be generous with your estimates under promise over deliver. And that's sort of like a good mantra for freelancing in general or even doing work. You're going to want to do a downtown job. You're going to want to make sure that (laughs) that job is done better than what your client is expecting and faster than what they're expecting. Because when you initially planned the timeline, initially planned the quote and everything like that, that you uh, gave yourself more time than you needed rather than about the time you needed, or maybe even potentially an optimistic view of time that you needed. Uh, And we are optimistic people. A lot of times we just sort of say, this is what it's going to take me without adding on. So it's, it's important to add on that buffer so that you know that the amount that you initially thought at least has a little bit of an extra buffer on top of that, just uh, to save yourself from your own optimistic presentations of everything. 
Yeah. And I often get questions about both quoting and, and quoting timelines is like, how do you know how much it will cost and how do you know how long it will take you? Uh, and the answer to that is you have to figure that out. That's a skill that you need to build. And often you see very experienced contractors and you know, if we go back to just like contractors in your house or we should say in in, in the UK, they call them builders. Mm, and you know what's another funny word that I heard that UK, the, the Brits say, you know, those like yellow gloves that you do dishes with? Yes. Do, Wait, do, what I, are those called? Rubber gloves? I don't know. Yeah. We don't use those. Yeah. I just, I mean, we don't use them either. This is not like the 1920s, but yes. uh, I was watching like a, a video on YouTube and he says, I've got to get me some marigolds. Uh, and I thought that was so awesome. It's cute. Yeah. So for our UK listeners, a contractor is a builder that comes to your house and, and does renovations. What was I saying? I was just totally sidetracked by marigolds. Timeline. Quoting time is a huge skill. And if you get an experienced contractor, they will be very good at quoting it. And sometimes you get inexperienced or bad contractors who are very bad and they always blow the budget on on timeline and on costs of things like that. So that's just as as much as you want to develop your web development skills, it's also important to be able to develop your estimation skills. Yeah, definitely. All right. Next, getting into the contract, because uh, this is one that I think people sometimes overlook, right? They think they're doing work between friends or something like that. And I think it is important to have a contract regardless of who you're working with. So you best have a contract uh, before you do any sort of work, right? You give them the quote, you give them the timelines, everything's agreed upon. Before you start your work, you make sure that the contract is signed and that both parties agreed to the terms within that contract. and. You know, people wonder about like getting contracts and things like that. I think it's personally, in my opinion, I would reach out to a lawyer just to have them draft you up something. Uh, I'm lucky that my neighbor is a lawyer and I'm uh, pretty tight with him. So I can just ask him is for a little favor. the same one that always mows the lawn when you're trying to record? No, not that neighbor. Okay. No, no. He, this guy lives a few houses down. No, uh, he, he's a he's a super cool guy. We go we go climbing and whitewater rafting and skiing and stuff like that. This guy's uh, super duper cool. So uh, if I ever need a little favor, I could say, hey, you know, I got this, you know, contract I, I need. What, what are your thoughts here? But I think it's important to at least talk to a lawyer or something like that to to have an idea of make sure that this is this contract is doing what you're expecting it to do and it fulfills your requirements as a professional. Yeah, at the same point, uh, for a lot of my early for a lot of my stuff, I just really didn't have contracts. At the very least, what I would do is I would have the client sign the quote and I would sign the quote as well so that it's kind of set in stone what's to be expected and what's to be delivered. And that helped me out a lot. And I've, I've even talked to a lot of like um, lawyers kind of in the area and they say like, yeah, it's good to have like an ironclad contract. But if you're in the spot where you're really trying to enforce this contract, you're taking someone to court. In most cases, it's probably not worth the five grand, eight grand, what two grand, whatever it is that you're you're working on uh, for some of these these freelance projects because it's going to cost way more time and way more money to actually hire somebody to get it figured out. So what he said is, yeah, having a contract is important, but what's much more important is having very clear communication with your client and and having a really good relationship with them. So uh, if something goes awry. Uh, you can kind of come out from under it and solve it and figure out a, a solution to that. So I've never had, a, luckily, I know that many people listening to this, I never had any like legal issues yeah. with my client, 
but it's because you're spending you probably your first line of defense is having a good relationship with your client and making everything crisp and clear as to what's to be expected, what's to be delivered. And you can usually find a, a way out of your, your situation. We'll have a section at the end of what to go do when it's going wrong. Last thing, if you do need a contract template, obviously going to a lawyer is ideal. Um, and what you can generally do is you can go find a, a template for a contract on something like Docracy. It's like a a database of free contracts. You can kind of take that, tweak it to your your liking, and then have like a lawyer kind of run through that. It'll often be much cheaper to have them just proofread something, make a few edits, and then sign off on it than for them to mm-hmm. create something from from absolute scratch. Yeah. It's not the end all be all required, but at the end of the day, if something is going super yeah. duper wrong, it could Cover be there to protect you. Yeah. Um and if things are going wrong on your website and you want to make sure that you know about Whoa. them. You're going to want to go ahead and get LogRocket. Now, LogRocket. That was fresh. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, LogRocket, (laughs) their little slogan on the front page is stop guessing when or why bugs happen. And I think this is just absolutely so dead on because LogRocket gives you sort of unprecedented, if I can use that word, visibility into solving your (laughs) bugs. Uh, Because what they give you is... In addition to, you know, the bugs that are happening, they actually give you a video replay. It's so cool. It's one of those things you just got to sign up for the trial and try out. They give you a video replay where you can see physically what's happening on the site. You can have access to the entire network activity. So every request and response, which is huge and all council errors. And it even works in with your existing tools like Redux and stuff like that. The session replay is one of those things that you want to try, you want to check out, uh, and you're going to get, again, you're going to get this insane visibility into the bugs that are going on in your site. And longtime listeners of Syntax are going to know that we often talk about Sentry for this. And and if you are using Sentry already, LogRocket integrates really well with Sentry. And you can use them both together, have them talking to each other. Again, it works with any of your tools, whether that's React, Angular, JS, Redux, Ember, Vue.js, anything. So check it out. Sign up for LogRocket and get 14 days for free. Head on over to LogRocket.com forward slash syntax. Sign up again, 14 days free. Check it out. Throw it in your app. See this session replay in action. Be blown away. Be excited. Uh, that's That was my experience with the LogRocket. Awesome. Next step we have in here is before you even get into starting the work, I think Scott added this thing is it's setting expectations to your client. I think that's just as important as gathering requirements is letting your you sh- your client should know what to expect from you. And uh, I've been in many situations where the client says, well, I'm paying you. You should be available 24 seven on my beck and call. I've had, especially when, when Blackberry started to become popular, when I was doing web development, I had many clients who would just at, on a whim, just send me an email, only the subject line. We should add big text to websites. And then I would wake up in the morning <laughs> and there'd be like 14 emails, all subject line. And it's just a mess. And, and for those clients, you need to come be like, look, I can't deal with you just coming in and giving me your ideas at any point in time. And there needs to be structure to this. So letting them know ahead of time what the design, the development, the revisions, we'll talk all about that, what that process looks like, letting them know that this might not be the only thing that you're you're working on and how to contact you, uh, letting them know how quickly you should expect a response. So I would always tell my clients, look, I do email once a day. So if you email me a couple times in a day, don't send me an email 45 minutes later saying, hey, did you get it? Or 
Yeah. Don't text me, Twitter, DM me, Instagram me and smoke signal me that you you sent me an email. That, that thing boils my blood is when people send me an email and then tweet me to tell me they sent me an email. I'm like, yeah. oh, if, if only there was some sort of notification process like this built into email it would be amazing you know like <laughs> oh there was no sarcasm there at all sir there was yeah. no sarcasm in that <laughs> so just setting expectations for your client is is really important establishing a professional environment because i think like when things get heated things can go awry so i've i once deployed a website and it was public and there was something going wrong with it and uh the client was getting really really stressed out and just texting me and then i sent a snarky text back like please stop texting me, I'm trying to work on it. And uh, that was a big mistake on my end because like that wasn't very professional at all. But it's important to be professional when things are going good so that when things go awry or if things go awry, you can you can still be professional. Yeah. I mean, I think the whole thing is just establishing a feel and a course for how this whole thing is going to go. And if you establish this like loosey goosey, uh, you know, non-professional sort of way of interacting, you're texting them, you're, you're acting like this, you're sort of loose on all your stuff, then it's going to signal to the client that they can be that way with you. Right. And it's going to signal if you're if you're emailing them at non-standard times or, or interacting with them, it's going to it's going to everything that you do signals back to them that this is OK in this relationship. So if you want to be available 24 seven and you want super casual everything, then by all means, go ahead and do it. But it's not going to make the experience as tight and controlled as possible, which is potentially going to come back and bite you in the butt if anything's ever going wrong. Yeah, I would always if I was doing email at night, like before I had kids, before I was married, I would just like work all the time. But I wouldn't send emails off hours like at like 9 p.m. or I wouldn't send emails on weekends. I would just write them and use something called Boomerang to schedule them to send. Oh, yeah. Boomerang. Um, because first, I think that gives off it, it might give off like a, a bit of an air of unprofessional where you're like, oh, I have so much to do. I'm working at 11 p.m. at night. Um, and second, it also makes it known to the client that it's OK to email me at 11 p.m. at night. And it probably it might be OK, but don't expect a reply from the weekend or, or emailing me at 11 p.m. at night. You have to try, sort of train your client to know what that sort of looks like. Yeah. A lot of this, again, you've mentioned it. I mean, that's a good bookend to this episode. You mentioned a lot of this is training the client, right? They are wild. They are feral. Is that the good word? I don't know if feral means that. <laughs> but either way, maybe. You, you don't want to treat them like they're a wild animal, but like you do want to train them to to be uh, like have proper expectations, have a proper understanding, because chances are maybe they haven't worked with someone in our profession before. And your experience is going to clue them off on what it's like to work with someone in our profession. Uh, a lot of times I've had clients that are like, my last developer was bad because of these reasons. They did not respond. They did not get things done on time. They just all out disappeared. Uh, I mean, there's there's a host of things you've probably heard from your clients and will hear from your clients about what it's been like to work with other developers. And it's probably why those people aren't working on any particular projects with that person anymore, where you are now getting the work. So you want to establish work. You want to establish good work. You want to establish professional environments and you will get repeat clients. You will get referrals up the wazoo and you will be more booked and can raise your rates and all that good stuff and you can make that money and live that yacht life which you know is what the point of doing all of this is in that regard yeah absolutely it's a good point you said there with the the client 
If they're starting to badmouth their last developer, dig into that, figure out why. It, it very well may be that the last developer was an idiot, but it very at the yeah. same time, it yes. might be that they are an absolute nightmare of a client to work with. And for clients like that, that need a little bit more handholding, I would often just charge more because you know you're going to need to spend more time on the phone. You know that you're going to have to travel into their office a couple times to actually talk to them. Whereas sometimes I would work with agencies and they have project managers that are just on it and they know how to they know how not to bug developers. They know how to put everything into one email. Um, and in that case, it's just a joy to work with them. And it's so smooth that you don't have to you don't have to spend so much time sort of managing the thing because that's their job. Word. Cool. I yes. think that that's a good a good place to wrap it up. We're going to be picking this up next week in part two when we talk about a whole bunch of stuff. We're going to be talking about the design process, the development process, feedback and revisions. We're going to be talking about deployment, handoff, bug fixes and support, and what to do when the project potentially goes bad and maybe you need to fire a client because clients are not infallible. And uh, just like you can be fired, you can fire a client. So uh, there's going to be a lot there. There is so much to talk about in this stuff. And uh, if you have any additional freelance stuff that you want to hear about, let us know because we are planning more episodes on freelancing. So I'd love, love, love to hear uh, what you want to hear. Well, let's get into some sick picks. Wes, do you have a sick pick for us today? Yeah. So in the past, I have sick picked this YouTube channel called Alex French Guy Cooking, where he takes a sort of like engineer mindset into cooking. It's very entertaining and he's obviously very good at what he does and just goes like deep, deep into it. I particularly enjoyed the uh, ramen one from Alex French Guy Cooking. Um, and I found another one who has a very similar vein and the episodes are very, very entertaining. And it gives me a lot of like hands on techniques on how to actually cook things. So the YouTube channel is called Food Busker. And uh, I've, I've only found it within the last week or so. So I'm still making my way through it. And I went through two of them so far, which was the nitrate free bacon curing, uh, which is how do you cure bacon using salt and sugar and not some of the curing salt is carcinogenic. Yeah. It's not good for you. So uh, <laughs> he went into that and went through all these like different steps on it. And it was super good, super helpful. Um, I think I'm going to try it myself. Like he does it in a way that it, you don't need a lot of equipment and stuff like that. So it's good for home cooks. And then I also went through the uh, Tonsuku ramen, which is it takes like 90 hours. You take like pig trotters, which is like the foot from the pig and you boil it trotters. and clean it. And <laughs> yeah, not a fun. This is, this is the guy that says marigold. So it's great. Just, pl just pleasant to hear trotters, this guy yeah. talk. I think trotter is the actual name uh, part of the pig. I don't think that's a UK thing, but it's it's enjoyable to hear him with his British accent say these these words um so check it out it's called food busker i don't really understand the whole busker part and it seems like his kitchen is like part of like a like a restaurant open air i'm not really sure of of what it, what it's like i haven't gone through it i'm there's years of videos here that i have to go through yet nice cool man that sounds uh i'm gonna have to look at that i i need some more of that stuff might you know, it's like as time goes on, I actually find so much value in YouTube. I, I subscribe to a lot of channels and uh, to me, always amazed at the kind of quality that comes out on YouTube. And and really, that's like one of the first places I go to learn anything nowadays. So, yeah, I just fixed my uh, like all of our appliances at home have been been crapping out. Our, our dishwasher crapped out, our dryer crapped out and our stove hinges bent and the stove igniter busted. So we had four things to Blah. fix in the last couple of weeks and all of them 
were on YouTube and I fixed them for all of them, each of them for under a hundred bucks. And I was like, this would have costed me thousands if I had appliance repair people come in. But YouTube is the best. It is. It's so good. So my sick pick today is going to be an extension for Chrome. Uh, and this is one that, you know, as developers, we open up a tab and the next thing you know, we got 500 tabs open up and our, our Chrome memory consumption is absolutely destroying our, our computer. This is like an have all you seen too my wife's thing. computer. Is that why you're saying this? I have not. No, but I <laughs> am king of having way too many tabs open. I probably have. I mean, they're they're microscopic right now in my computer. So <laughs> I need to start closing tabs. But we all know that these tabs sort of sit open and they actually consume memory and stuff like that. And then your whole computer is going to slow down. So my extension is going to be the great suspender, which what it does is if you have not been on a tab for a given amount of time, you can tweak that. What it does is it suspends the tab and it basically closes the tab out in a way that it has a little custom screen. And again, you can tweak this all to, you know, when to suspend, what to suspend. And it's going to save you so much memory consumption. It's one of those things that I install, like one of the, I mean, it's, you have your Chrome profiles, but it's one of the first extensions I install no matter what, because oftentimes these tabs open up and you don't even think about them by the end of the day. So this thing allows you to, close out these tabs while keeping them open. And then the only thing you need to do is visit that tab again and click on it. And then it reloads the page. So check it out. The great suspender. If you don't have this extension, it's one of my must have extensions for Chrome. Sweet. Let's go into some shameless plugs. This is the part where we hopefully gave you enough value from the podcast and we get a little selly and start to push our own products on you. So I have all of my uh, JavaScript and CSS courses available at westboss.com forward slash courses. You can learn React, ES6, Node, all of that. You can check them out on there. And Scott's going to plug. Yeah, I have a new course on styled components. Uh, this is my first course on styled components called Level 1 Styled Components, in which we basically talk about building scalable systems and styled components. We talk about extensions. We talk about plugins that work with styled components to give you additional SaaS-like functionality. We talk about great ways to sort of organize all of your stuff and build an extendable system that can both be for small sites, large sites, medium sites, and grow with your site as it grows. So check it out at Level Up Tutorials. Dot com. You can purchase this series at forward slash store, or you can sign up to become a level up pro. If you sign up for the year, you save 25%. So level up tutorials.com. That is level up, not level, love, 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 whatever I do when I uh, love, love it all together. Yes. Level <laughs> up tutorials. Thank you. All right. I think that's it for this week. If you enjoyed it, if you have any other tips about your own freelance design process or your, your entire process, make sure you tweet us at SyntaxFM and we will catch you next week for the other half of this one. Peace. Peace. Head on over to Syntax.FM for a full archive of all of our shows. And don't forget to subscribe in your podcast player or drop a review if you like this show.